Today's reading will be from Ephesians 4, verses, verses 25 through 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thanks, Brian. Uh, it's perfect that Brian uh, read the, uh, the passage this morning, and I'll explain why in a few minutes. Just remember Brian Vaccaro and his wife, beautiful wife Ashley right there. Yeah, you're going to be part of a sermon illustration today. It'd be really cool. I got permission from Brian, so if you have a problem with it, just talk, talk to him, okay? Anyway, uh, we've been working through the book of Ephesians all year, and uh, in particular, I think this is our fourth week in this, uh, this iconic paragraph at the end of chapter four, uh, these eight verses, um, about uh, where Paul is, is telling us to stop doing these things and start doing these things by the power of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things we need to remember about this section of Scripture is it comes in the wake of him saying, put off the old and put on the new. So every title that we've had, I believe, in this particular paragraph has been to put on something new. And today is put on encouragement. That's what he's asking. So this idea of of taking off the old and putting on the new, which I want to remind us is not always the easiest thing in the world, right? To, To take your old ways, who you are, and, and to start tearing that down, to deconstruct all of the, all of the old and then, and then start putting on all of the new, which can be very challenging. And not only that, it can be challenging outside of who you are as well. I have a, a, a pretty good friend. We've known each other for a number of years. Uh, he, he knows I'm a pastor and a Christian, and he's always asked me questions about my faith and and, and we've, we've just gone through uh, this whole thing, and, and I keep praying for him and wondering if, he's ever, if God's ever going to open his eyes and he's going to come to the faith. And about six months ago, he did. And, and he started attending another church in the valley. He doesn't live very close here, and he wants good teaching. So he started attending a good, another church in, in, in the valley. But here's what he's found. When he took off the old self and put on Christ, his friends have been mercilessly uh, attacking him, ridiculing him. His family, he's, he's got one person in his family who's not talking to him anymore. So, so the putting on, and I just want to acknowledge, the putting on of the new is not only difficult for us as individuals, but it's difficult when it, when it also affects our community our old identity in relationship with others as well. That's hard. And you need the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do that, and you need a really good faith community to be able to do that. The people who are going to be there when, when, when you're being torn down by those people that, that really are supposed to be loving you in the midst of this. So 
we're putting, taking off the old and putting on the new. And today we're putting on encouragement. Let me uh, focus in on the two verses uh, we have for today, 29 and 30. Paul writes this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So I'm just going to pick through these two verses clause by clause. It starts by saying, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, which, which makes me so happy that it's, that it's confined to just what's coming out of our mouths, because that means that we can type and post and tweet anything we want, right? Isn't that, isn't that what that means? Uh, those of you who are old enough like me to remember what it was like before digital communication and social media platforms and the internet, um, you'll understand this probably better than, than younger people who have just grown up in this context. But, but there is something called the disinhibition effect that scholars, communication and psychology scholars study uh, because of the rise of digital communication. And I didn't bring my phone up here because it makes these pants look stupid, but, okay. Here's what the disinhibition effect is, okay? Anytime there is a screen mediating your communication between you and somebody else, your inhibitions go down. That's just a fact. So your phone, your iPad, your, your, your uh, laptop, whatever it is, if there's a screen, um, most scholars will tell you that it's almost as if you're talking to yourself when you post online. You don't understand the, the reality, the embodiment of the person on the other end. And so when we put stuff on the internet, when we text somebody, even somebody we know and we love, we will say things through digital communication that we will never say to them in person. Now, and I know some of you are like, well, that's a good thing. We're finally being honest. Has it really been a good thing? Has it really been a good thing? Uh, it, it's, been, it's been amazing how destructive we have become because of the disinhibition effect. We need to remember there's a real person on the other end of the... It doesn't mean that we can't speak truth, but we need to be careful about how we're speaking truth. And, and we need to remember that those inhibitions were given to us by God for us to use so that we can, we can at least relate to others in a reasonable manner. The word talk in this clause, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, the word talk is the word logos. The Greek word logos, which depending on the context, means word or message, discourse, thoughts, or feelings. In other words, it's any time we are communicating at all through any communication channel. Paul just didn't have digital communication back then. But if he were writing this today, he would say, no matter what the channel is, we need to make sure that no corrupting talk is coming from us. So this is also about what we post and tweet and think and keyboard and say or otherwise communicate. In fact, we use the English Standard Version translation uh, at Redemption Church. If you look through all the other translations, many of the translations don't use the word talk. They use the word communication because that better captures uh, the essence of what Paul is saying here. Don't, don't let any corrupting communication come out of you whatsoever. Uh, 
Um, there's another letter in the New Testament. It's called James. Very clever because it was written by James. Um, in the letter of James, a lot of people call James the New Testament's wisdom literature. In the Old Testament, there are a number of books that, are, that fit into a genre called wisdom literature. So we go there to, to get wisdom. Proverbs would be one of those uh, books. Um, Proverbs has very little narration in it, though. Proverbs is, is, is just, it's a verse and a verse and a verse, and there's very little context there. And in Proverbs, there are certainly a number of verses about how we communicate to each other, how we talk to each other, and what is wise and what is foolish. In James, the book of James, interestingly enough, uh, chapter 3 into chapter 4, James offers in all of the Bible the longest contiguous, uh, continuous treatise on the mouth, the tongue, and how we speak to each other anywhere in the Bible. It's more than a chapter long. And I want you just to hear what James has to say about how we communicate to each other. He starts by saying this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, some of you are like, yeah, okay, that's cool. And, and that's true. Uh, pastors and preachers and teachers really need to understand that we have to be very careful. We have to hold ourselves uh, to... A, to the highest possible standard that the Spirit can, can enable us to, to be at. That is absolutely true. But then he gets into this more general idea of how we communicate to each other. For we all stumble in many ways. Everybody stumbles. We all stumble, right? In many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, which doesn't exist, able to also bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that the horse obeys us, we guide their whole bodies as well. We can guide our entire being with our tongue is what he's saying. Look at the ships also. They are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Has anybody in here ever said anything that you regret? For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. Isn't that interesting? We can train a dog, but we can't train our tongues. Okay? It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our, our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth the same, uh, from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. There you go, tongue again, do not boast. And notice it's not ambition that he's upset about, it's, it's, it's selfish ambition. 
This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom. When we open our mouths, is it something that's from God or is it something from Satan? For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. That's, that's how damaging this tongue can be. Paul's saying we have problems with how we communicate toward each other, but what you need to do by the power and the filling of the Holy Spirit, by being a gospel-centered person in gospel-centered relationships, you need to be somebody who encourages and builds up. Not somebody who flatters needlessly, but somebody who encourages and builds up. And it's very important to understand this. Verse 29 is not simply and only a prohibition against cussing. A lot of people have used this verse to proof text the idea that you can't say dookie pooty or whatever it is, okay? That's not what this verse is really about. It may be a part of it, but if it is, it's a small part. You know, people in the first century were not walking around dropping F-bombs. Paul had way more on his mind than that. Now, that's not permission to do that. I'm just saying it's about way more than that. You and I can do way more damage with our words, spoken or keyboarded, than anything else we do and never cuss. Never utter a cuss word. And that's Paul's bigger point here, and it's James' point also in three, chapter 3 and, and, and 4. That word corrupting, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, that's a heavy, strong, forceful word. The word literally means decayed, putrid, and rotten. Decayed, putrid, and rotten. How, how many of you like rotten fruit? Anybody just really go for rotten fruit? Okay. Uh, how about putrid fish? Is that on any of your menus? Okay. So my wife, Jackie, doesn't even like uh, fresh, perfectly prepared fish, let alone putrid fish. Okay, so think about the rotten fruit, putrid fish. The fruit and the fish are both ideas behind this word. Yet the most common understanding of the word is that it describes living among the wafting scent of a dead animal. Living among the wafting scent of a dead animal. Have you ever been in an environment of toxic communication? I'm sure all of us have at some time or another. That's what Paul is describing here. It cannot possibly be good for anyone, this toxic environment of communication, whether it's in your home or in the workplace, anywhere it is. It can't be good for anyone. It can't be good for the people who promulgate it, and it can't be good for the people who receive it. It's like living among dead, rotting corpses. Paul says, don't use language that promotes and perpetuates rot and decay. A scholar, Joseph Benson, says it this way, in Christ... We must not use words calculated to infect the other. We should not use words calculated to infect the other. In other words, leave the rubbish to other people. Our communication should be calculated to give life, not promote decay. Our language, our communication, whether it's written, spoken, posted, nonverbal, or otherwise, should be designed to instruct, to reprove, to encourage and to comfort. It needs to build up. 
And that's his next clause, building up the one who hears it. Building up means the construction through encouragement, practical criticism, and genuine affirmation of a dwelling that is appropriate for the Lord to inhabit. You and I are temples of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. And so when we are communicating with others, the idea is to build up that temple so that it's appropriate for the Holy Spirit to dwell in it. It's communication that's seasoned with both salt and pepper. It's it's communication that spices and preserves. It's communication that is filling and wholesome. Now, we're not responsible for changing people. We need to understand that. That's one, of the mo- that's one of the most difficult things for people to figure out is that you can't change anybody else. We try all the time, right? But we really can't. Only God can do that. But we are responsible for providing an environment where the Holy Spirit can be used to greater effect. Environments where there's solid biblical instruction, where there's godly wisdom, where there's good rebuke and correction. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3. God's word is also good for rebuke and correction. Uh, Environments of forgiveness and certainly environments of encouragement, respect, honor, and genuine dignity. Remembering that that we're dealing with people who are created in the image of God. All people. And that that we need to respect the dignity of the other. And the end of verse 29 says, That it might give grace to those who are hearing. Grace here means just what the person needs. In other words, do your best to know your audience. Whether it's a one-on-one conversation or, or you're speaking to a group of people, do your best to know your audience. One of the challenges about the United States culture, the culture we live in in the United States, is we are what, what is known as a receiver-oriented communication culture. What that means is that once a message leaves a person... They have lost all control of the interpretation and meaning of that message, and whoever receives it gets to now apply interpretation and and meaning the way they want to. We are a receiver-oriented communication culture. And I know some of you are like, that's not fair. That's not what I meant. I know. It may not be fair, but that's the culture we live in, which means we have to spend time thinking about how somebody else might receive what we are going to say. I know, that takes work. I just want to say, I just want, I want to be just true to myself and, and, and tell it like it is. And how often has that gotten us into trouble? We need to be aware of who we're speaking about. We need to practice empathy. And, and think about this. I, I know I'm, I've been guilty of this. How often do we communicate something for the purpose of making us feel better? for the purpose of building us up, for the purpose of supplying what we think we need. You know, you're, you're just on that keyboard sending that email, and then you hit send and you smoke a cigarette. <laughs> and then what happens five minutes later? You've got sender's remorse. That's what you've got. You're like, mm, maybe I was a little harsh. Maybe that was a little tough to hear or tough to read. Well, how do we know what others need? Well, here you go. Here's a great piece of advice. How do you know what others need? Here's the first rule. Quit obsessing about yourself. We live in a self-obsessed world. We live in this this world of me-ism. First rule, quit obsessing about yourself. That's the first rule. And then second, 
start to make the effort to, of actually engaging people, engaging them. Not like, hey, I want to talk to you so I can tell you all, everything that I think and all about me, but rather engage them, talk to them and ask questions about them. Uh, not inappropriate questions, but, but hear their story. You might learn something. I, it's incredible to me. I sit down with somebody and I want to hear their story. It's amazing what I learn when I'm listening to other people tell me their story. It is fantastic. And, and, and let them talk for a while so that they can begin to trust your, uh, excuse me, test your trustworthiness. Because they need that. They need to know that they're in an environment of grace and trust. It's called relationship. And here you go. Relationship is best done in person, flesh on flesh, where there's going to be friction and tension. The communication scholar John Jeanette, I'm fond of quoting him on this. He says, I remember before there was Facebook, people used to get their actual faces together. And that's where real community and relationship happen. And generally, there are four needs that people have when it comes to communication and relationship, generally four of them. Here you go. Number one, people do need affirmation. But it needs to be genuine. Empty flattery is, is a waste of everybody's time, okay? Empathy and compassion are substantive. Think about what you're going to say if you're going to affirm somebody. Second of all, people need loving, critical input. Every person has a blind self, a blind spot, or several blind spots. Everybody needs Loving but critical input. Have you ever been driving and you check your rear view mirror and you check your side view mirror, all clear, you start to move over and you find out that there's a car in your what? Your blind spot, right? Now I know with new technology, if you have a new car, you don't have to worry about that. But I'm talking about old school driving here, okay? All right? But you end up smashing into somebody. It's it's destructive, not dealing with your blind spots. When I was growing up and I was learning how to drive, I was always told, check both mirrors and then turn your head and look. You have to look. You can ask my wife, Jackie, how many times I will ask her if she's sitting in the passenger seat, would you check and see? I'm asking for her to reveal my blind spots to me when I'm driving. If they're important when we're driving, how much more are re the revelation of our blind spots in real person about who we are? How much more important is it in that context? The third thing we need is we need these environments of grace and trust. I keep saying that. Don't you want to work in an environment of grace and trust where you can trust the other people you're working with and also know that if you make a mistake, there's some grace there? You'll be corrected, but there's grace. Same thing at home. Same thing at school. Same thing at church. Every environment that we're in, we want it to be an environment of grace and trust. We should also provide environments of grace and trust. And then number four, we need a sense of purpose and or significance. Now, considering these four needs, here's something that we have to assume. Human beings need community. Human beings are created for relationship because there's no such thing as affirmation, as loving critical input, as environments of grace and trust, and, and a sense of purpose and, and significance without other people. It can't be done. You can't do these four things in solitude. You can't do them digitally. 
It has to be in a community. Paul then writes in verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, very often when Paul writes, he has in the back of his mind all of his training and understanding of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And it's possible that here he might have had Isaiah 63 in mind. Uh, Isaiah 63 says this, yet when Israel rebelled, they grieved God's Holy Spirit. Damaging communication grieves the Holy Spirit. To grieve, what does grieve mean? Grieve, in, in, in the original language, it means to make sad or to cause sorrowful distress. It grieves the Holy Spirit. It grieves God when you and I tear down that which he has created in his image. And, and remember James chapter 3. James says, it's amazing, with this same mouth, we praise God and we curse those who are made in his image and likeness. It ought not to be that way. James is just revealing truth to us there. But it's not just the corrupting communication that grieves the Holy Spirit. This clause here, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, according to all the Greek geeks, applies to all of the exhortations that have come in this paragraph prior to. So it grieves the Holy Spirit when we embrace falsehoods and we don't speak truth. It grieves the Holy Spirit when we allow anger to control our behavior rather than righteous anger and constructive action being the result of injustice and offense. It grieves the Holy Spirit when we are lazy and idle and expect everyone else to take care of us even though we are capable of contributing. It grieves the Holy Spirit when we steal, pilfer, cheat, or swindle. Rather than grieving the Holy Spirit, we should be celebrating the Holy Spirit and His work in us giving thanks for his redemptive, sealing work in our lives. And Paul says, because we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. This is not the first time he said this in this letter, by the way. He, he mentions this also in chapter 1, verse 14 of Ephesians. He says that we are sealed for our salvation by the Spirit of God. The idea of being sealed in the first century is a specific reference to the seal of the king or the Caesar through his signet ring. It's an, official, it's an official seal that cannot be broken, and it marks total and complete ownership and the official certification of one's status, either in the kingdom of Rome or now in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of God, and our status, which is now in Christ. Our status in Christ has been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and that seal cannot be broken. In other words, once you become a Christian and the Spirit of God enters your life, you can't lose your salvation. And the reason is because your salvation didn't have anything to do with your good works in the first place. It's all the work of God. You can't lose something that you didn't find in the first place. God came and pursued you. God came and pursued me. We don't seal our salvation. We can't. God seals our salvation. God has us in his grip. We're not gripping God. Because if it were up to us, we would eventually let go. It's unsustainable. His grip is eternal. Sustainable. It's always going to be there. And, and but that should be really good news for those who believe. And he ends by saying, for the day of redemption... For the day of redemption, the day of deliverance from this futile, fallen world. That, that's the day Jesus comes again and he ushers in the new Jerusalem. So, 
the New Jerusalem. Those of you who have been around here a while, you know I like to talk about the coming of the New Jerusalem. Um, Brian and Ashley, they have, they have twin boys. I think they're six, right? I tried to ask them this morning. They said they were one and a half. They're six, right? Almost six. And then you have a daughter, Selah, who just turned three. So Selah occasionally has heard about the New Jerusalem. Um, but she's three, so her language isn't quite there yet. And so Brian was telling me that when she prays, she prays for the new juicy yummy. <laughs> and Cody and I think that actually sounds a little better. <laughs> and it, it, by the way, you think about, you know, it was the new juicy yummy that had the temple of God during the Old Testament. Remember that? So anyway, the new juicy yummy. I, I want to close with two things. First of all, I'm going to go back to uh, some ideas about digital communication and, and social media. There, there are actually, as I watch on social media, there are two pretty uh, common themes. There are lots of themes on social media, but two pretty common ones that I've seen as a communication teacher, okay? And, and you know how I love irony. They're, it's very ironic. The first theme on social media is the level of incivility. It, it, I am just stunned at what people say to each other on social media. It, 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 I, let, let me tell you something. I could watch R-rated movies for the rest of my life, 24 hours a day, and not be exposed to the level of vitriol that I see on, on social media. That's just true. It, and it's awful. Here's the second major theme. There are people all over social media posting and tweeting about how uncivil human beings have come, become. Isn't that ironic? I find that ironic. And it's not really beautiful irony. irony. I love beautiful ir irony. This is dark irony. This is irony that, that exposes who human beings really are. Uh, think about it. I, I'm, I'm most familiar with Twitter, which makes me a middle-aged white guy. I understand that. I was told that by my, my, my uh, students at PVCC. Um, but um, Twitter's kind of the king of fake profiles, fake accounts and anonymous posts. It, it's very difficult to find real people uh, sometimes on Twitter. There are so many fake um, accounts. Um, and, and so it, it's hard. Um, but what we, what we discover from that, the reason they, that people put fake accounts up there is because they want to reveal their true heart, which they know is awful. You ever thought about that? They know that what is actually in their heart is devastatingly wicked and dark, and so they don't want others to know who they are. But they still want to express it. They still want to that they still want to let it out. They just want to be able to hide behind the skirt of cyberspace while they do it. Uh, those of you who believe, and I know there are still people who believe this, that human beings are basically good, you just aren't paying attention. You just aren't. What's worse are those who say people are good and they're getting better. No, we're really not. I hate to say that. Um, Consider the rise of all of these new organizations. The Institute for Civil Dialogue. My good friend and colleague actually started that in 2004. The Institute for Civil Dialogue. We need an institute now to teach us how to have civil dialogue. Okay? The Civility Center, which is also known as the National Institute for Civil Discourse. There's also the Civil Politics Organization. <laughs> They've been doing a lot of good. <laughs> you know, these entities did not exist 25 years ago.
But with the rise of digital communication, which has led to the outing of our true hearts, we now need organizations to tell us how to speak to one another. Isn't that sad? Unless, of course, you work for them. <laughs> God bless you in your ministry. Do you really think these organizations are going to work? I'm a little skeptical. Uh, Jesus and Scripture, all of Scripture, said it's going to get way worse by the time the new Juicy Yummy comes. <laughs> it's going to get way worse. And, and what's funny is I think we all know this. Cognitively, we get this. We all know that we're a mess and we're getting worse. But we can't stop. We can't help ourselves. We just can't do anything about it. We are powerless against this power. And the reason is because it's the power of sin. It's the power of corruption that has been with us since this stupid tree thing in Genesis chapter 3. When I was working on my master's in communication at ASU in the early uh, 2000s, I was on a team uh, for nine months. Uh, there was a, a full professor uh, named uh, Dan Canary at ASU and then uh, four grad assistants, and I was one of them. Uh, we did a nine months worth of research into road rage. It was really interesting, guided by communication theory, attribution theory. Um, here's one of the things we discovered. Do you know why um, we behave so much more wickedly in our cars than, say, in a restaurant when we're sitting in a restaurant? Why are we more wicked in our cars than in a restaurant? Anybody know why? It's called the invulnerability factor. When we're in our cars, especially if our windows are tinted just a little bit, when we're in our cars, we believe we are invulnerable. Nobody can get to us. And so we begin behaving out of our true hearts when we're in our cars. Think about it. Driving isn't a good character builder. It's a good character revealer. It's the same thing on the Internet. That's what the disinhibition effect is about. Now, why do I tell you all of this? I mean, happy Sunday. How's everybody feeling right now, you know? Why do, we, why do we talk every week about the fallenness and brokenness of, of the world and of people and of culture? Do we get some kind of perverse pleasure out of it? And the answer is no. Cody does a little bit, but I don't. I don't at all. Okay? Here's the problem. We all spend 167 hours every week in a world and a culture that bombards us with the message that we are all sweet, good, wonderful creatures who deserve nothing but praise, adoration, and every good thing that life has to offer because we exist, because we deserve it, and then we spend about an hour having the Bible tell us the truth. That's tough work. None of these institutes, none of these centers, none of these nonprofit organizations have a snowball's chance in a Phoenix July of doing anything. The corrupting power of sin is just too much. Listen, listen. There is no policy, there is no law, there is no cultural moral code that can change us or save us. If that were true, all we would need is the Ten Commandments. If that were true, all we would need is the Mosaic Law. But it wasn't enough. In fact, that wasn't even the purpose. God knows that a law, a policy, a rule, a code cannot do what needs to be done to redeem us and to save us. Only Jesus. That's why he sent... There would have been no need for Jesus to come if the Ten Commandments worked that way. None. It's only Jesus, only the Holy Spirit, only the plan and the purpose and the work of the Father have the power to reverse this curse in our lives. And that's why our message every single week 
is come to Jesus because Jesus is what we really need. So, so here's the second thing. Because the body of Christ is so essential, the body, the faith community, the flesh-on-flesh workings of church, because that is so essential to Christianity, the faith that we share is as much about creating environments as it is about personal transformation. The faith we share is as much about creating environments where the Holy Spirit can do its work as it is about personal transformation because that's where the personal transformation will happen. This is why every Sunday we say to you, here's what you need. You need to be in corporate worship on Sundays. You you need to be here. Well, I can do church on the internet. You're not doing church on the internet. You're alone at Starbucks, not engaging in in that, that necessary friction of life not really being confronted with who you are and the blessing and the joy of who Jesus is. You need this faith community. You need to be part of corporate worship. The second thing is you need to be part of a community. You need to be part of the classes or, or the, uh, the in-home groups, the redemption communities, the RCs. You need to be engaging in those specific gospel-centered relationships and discipling mechanisms that we have in the church. You need, you need that. And then, and then you need to be serving as well. You, you need to be outward-focused. You need to be loving on and thinking of others. There, there is so much freedom in serving others and not dwelling on yourself. I, I don't know if you've experienced that. but there, I'm not saying you're not important and you don't need to deal with your stuff. But I'm telling you, if you only deal with your stuff, you're missing half of it. Serving others is where you discover a lot about who you are and how to deal with your own stuff. God calls us to turn ourselves outward. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And I just pray that, uh, again, we would be a community uh, filled with individuals that would, that would um, seriously pursue this idea of putting on encouragement, uh, of using our communication to build up and not just tear down. God, help us to do that. We know that it's by the power of your resurrected Son and by the filling of your Holy Spirit that we can do that. So let us look there first and not to our own power. Uh, let, us, let, us, let us be pressing into you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.